Hi, this is Gary Meese with The Case Against, episode 62. Today's uh, June 23rd, 2020. Christopher Byers was born June 23rd, 1984. So he would have been 36 years old today. Uh, As many of you know, but maybe not everyone that listens to this podcast knows, his father, uh, adoptive father, uh, John Mark Byers, died in a traffic accident last Thursday. Uh, His mother died... I think it was 95 or 96, 95, 96 around in there. I, I, sh- I could look it up, but I didn't. Uh, his par- his uh, mother is uh, John Mark Byers, and Melissa had moved to Cherokee Village. Um, she had resumed using drugs and was in poor health, was grieving tremendously over her son's death, and she was she found was found dead after a was described as an afternoon nap. Uh, The cause of death has never been determined. I have less information about his uh, biological father, Ricky Lee Murray, but Mr. Murray died uh, a few years ago. And uh, he, uh, he was he was in the camp with uh, that uh, West Memphis three were innocent though I'm not really sure of exactly how he articulated that position so I think it's worth it's at least worth mentioning uh, John Mark Byers the last we heard anything was really quite quite some time back but uh, at that time he was 2013 in particular uh, he was uh, touting the uh, so-called four perp theory that uh, Terry Hobbs, David Jacoby, Buddy Nichols, and uh, L.G. Hollingsworth Jr. were uh, involved in this killing of these three little boys on May 5th, 1993. It's a pretty absurd theory. It's based on claims from two convicted rapists we're still in prison at this point. Uh, from uh, they're, you know, they're not good prisoners. <laughs> uh, they've they've had their own problems in prison, uh, and uh, they have they were not doing well on the outside when they were out. But they haven't. Neither one of them have been out for some number of years now, and I, the prospects of them getting out really soon, I think, are. I think one of them may have a parole hearing coming up before too long, but they're. It's not looking real, really good that they're they're not the best sources of information. Let's put it that way. And um, I, the case of John Mark Byers is a very interesting uh, aspect of this case. He is uh, had a very strong personality. Uh, his presence really dominated in many ways. To some extent, the first movie, 
first Paradise Lost movie. This definitely dominated the second Paradise Lost movie, and it was all about him. And I was appalled. I, I watched it again last night, and it was not really... It was what, the way I remembered it. Uh, it had been a couple of years since I'd watched it, but uh, it was the way I remembered it, which was, you know... <laughs> I... I remember being taken, not for the first time, by a statement that uh, from Kathy Bakken of the infamous KGB trio, consisting of Burke Sauls, Kathy Bakken, and uh, Grove Pashley, that, uh, you know, this is all evidence-based. Well, the truth is, is their claims were based on very weak, poor evidence. Uh, and it's also interesting how not just the alternative suspect changes uh, from you know one movie to the next, but even the the uh, mode of death and uh, the circumstances of the death change. In this movie, we have Brett uh, Turvey. He knew something about autopsies. He, he knows something about forensics. I'm not so sure about his certification on all this. But anyway, he, uh, he, he came up with the idea that there were human bite marks there, which has uh, been disputed, and, and he described how a knife was used on the boys. And that was in the second movie. By the third movie, no knives were used, and they decided, they got some other experts who decided that... Uh, uh, that no knives were used, and this was all, you know, snapping turtles and uh, coyotes and so forth. So, and there were some other uh, really anomalous things in there with Eccles projecting himself as this really nice, soft-spoken, decent, thoughtful fellow who's just, you know, straightened out and got his life together as a Buddhist in the prison and look at him now. He's a thoroughly ridiculous ceremonial magician uh, that once again is back. He's back to trying to draw as much attention as he can draw to himself, which isn't that easy to do in New York City, but I'm sure he manages to do it at least to some extent. Anyway, uh, I plan on doing something bigger, more comprehensive with Mark Byers describing how these unfortunate circumstances came about, that he became the object of derision and suspicion that he did. But uh, had some things come up, wasn't feeling that great. Uh, and uh, I, I didn't want to rush, do a rust job. So uh, I'm just going to sign off for now and saying that, you know, I, my intention is to do something more with that in the future. Uh, really, and really look at all three of those move, all three of those Paradise Lost movies again, and also West of Memphis, and really try to dig into them a little bit and see what's really going on there. But uh, you know, it is striking. Uh, you know, I said we'll see comment. I'll see comments from P. 
people who've obviously just seen one of the movies and they have a totally different opinion about who did it and what the case is about than somebody who saw, say, uh, somebody who saw the second movie and they have a totally different opinion about the case than somebody who saw, say, the third movie or saw West of Memphis. Anyway, um, going to continue with the confessions of Jesse Miskelly Jr. Um, this is a very interesting confession. that he, I'm going to talk about today. I'm, I'm, I'm sure I'm not going to get through all of it since I've already spent some time talking about uh, the unfortunate situation with John Mark Byers and, and, and Chris Byers' birthday. Um, it really makes me quite sad when I think about the fact that there's, you see this picture of this little eight-year-old boy or, or pictures of him when he was younger. But he's, he's always going to be a little boy. All three of those boys are never, they didn't grow up. They didn't get the opportunities that, that you had, that I had, to experience more of life than what they did. And it, it's incredibly sad. It's absolutely so unnecessary. And, uh, you know, I just have to think what today he might have his own eight or nine year old son very likely could have that's true of all three of those boys and maybe maybe he would still have his father and he might still have his mother you just don't know I mean we don't know but there's absolutely no doubt that certainly his death contributed to his mother's death. I don't think anybody who uh, followed that case at all and looked at, has looked at that can deny the effect that that had on her. It's horrible. Um, now I'm off again on that, but um, I'm going to talk about the confession uh, that uh, Miss Kelly gave on February 17th to uh, prosecutors. He'd just given the Bible confession and he just he just given a confession to a couple of deputies that were transporting to prison just the couple, within the weeks since his uh, conviction. February 17th He's going to go into it again, and this time he's going to uh, explain his role in the killings, and he's going to do it to the prosecutors. And the prosecutors, let's be let be understood, the prosecutors want him to testify against uh, the other two killers. And... There's no doubt that they probably would try to work out some sort of, I don't know what they could do. I mean, he'd already been convicted and he'd already been sentenced, but uh, I guess they could go back to court and seek a modification of sentencing if he was willing to testify against the other two. He did not. He did not. But it certainly seemed like he might. 
It, it did that it went that way several times. And not only did the prosecutors hear the this this confession that we're going to talk about, but his defense attorneys did. Dan Stidham, Greg Crow. <coughs> they were there along with Brent Davis along with uh, Clay County Deputy Prosecuting Attorney Joe Calvin at Calvin's office in Rector, Arkansas. Now, the uh, Eccles-Baldwin trial was going to start in Jonesboro on February 28th, and word of Miss Kelly's incriminating statements to these deputies transporting him to, to prison had prompted Brent Davis, who was the prosecuting attorney, uh, for that for that region to call Miss Kelly's lawyers to discuss a possible post conviction plea deal. Then on February fifteenth, the Miss Kelly defense ruled out testifying against the other two. And not totally clear why they ruled this out. Uh, Stidham did, did not seem to be, be an advocate of working on a plea deal because he could have had he could have had one at some point. Uh, not great terms for Jesse because he would have been implicated in a triple murder of three little boys. So they're, he's not going to just walk away from that. He certainly could have gotten a modified, much sweeter deal on as far as time served and again post conviction he's already convicted so I'm not sure what he has to lose then except to, uh, what it put and he didn't have much to appeal on so I don't know what they thought they were going to lose by not agreeing to a post conviction plea deal but he doesn't have a post conviction plea deal but guess what he does he decides to talk to the prosecutors. He was hoping to see, Miss Kelly was hoping to see his girlfriend Susie Brewer in exchange for his cooperation. And, you know, this might be what you call a short time horizon. In other words, he wasn't really interested in working out uh, a plea deal, talking for a plea deal to cut down his time in prison from dec by decades, no doubt. But he's willing to talk so he can just hang out a little bit with his little, what was she, 12, 13, 14-year-old girlfriend at the time. I think Susie was 12 or 13. She may have been a little older. Uh, and... Uh, as a result, Miss Kelly, wanting to talk to his girlfriend, he refused to talk to his own attorneys, and he insisted on making another statement, and he insisted on making that statement to the prosecutors. Now, Miss Kelly had been moved from the prison at Pine Bluff to make him available to testify in the Eccles Baldwin trial, prompting Stidham and Crowe to drive to Rector to speak with their client and the prosecutors. The prosecutors were still hopeful that Miskello would testify. 
Early in the taping, before questioning began, Stidham told Miskelly, I am advising you that I don't think it is a good idea for you to give this statement. And Miskelly responded that he was going to give the statement because, quote, because I want something done about it, unquote. Judge David Burnett approved Miskelly making this statement with the stipulation that his attorneys be present. While it was agreed the statement could not be used against Miskelly, no promises of any benefit were made, and Miskelly was sworn in by Brent Davis. Joe Calvin asked, Okay, nobody has questioned you about anything that has happened. Is that correct? Miskelly, no. Calvin, how, how have we treated you? Nice. Has anybody been rude to you or anything? No. Calvin says, we got you a cheeseburger sandwich. And I asked Mr. Crow on the telephone if that would be all right. He said that would be perfectly all right. And we purchased you a cheeseburger. Is that correct? Yes, sir. And I gave you a couple of Diet Cokes. I do not know if you drank them, but you drank those. Is that correct? Yes, but you have not promised, been promised anything before your testimony, and you want to give it free and voluntary, and nobody has mistreated you. No. Now, Brent Davis asked, Okay, I want to draw your attention back to the date that the three little boys were murdered. If you would, on that date, did you go to Robin Hood Hills? Robin Hood Woods? Miss Skelly says, Yes, sir, I did. Okay, and who did you go there with? Damien and Jason. Okay, and when you went there, what happened when you got to the woods? Miss Kelly says, we sit there for a while, and then the three little boys came up. Davis, what, did you have anything to drink, or had you done any drugs or anything like that prior to that time or during that time? Miss Kelly, I was drinking. So Brent Davis asks, what were you drinking? Miss Kelly says, whiskey, Evan Williams. Okay, and do you recall whether it was daylight or dark when you got to the woods? Miss Kelly says, it was still daylight. It would have been still daylight if they'd gotten there around 6.30. Davis, okay, and do you know or have any idea what time it was, it was about when you got to the woods? Miss Kelly, no, I don't. Okay, now where did you enter the woods from, Miss Kelly? By a bridge? Davis, okay, and what kind of bridge was it? Miss Kelly says, on a service road. Now, I think what he's talking about, a bridge, he's talking about an overpass, and there's an overpass uh, in 7th Avenue that crosses over the the combined I-40, I-55 interstate that's not very far from Robin Hood Hills. And I think that's what he's referring to. I don't think he's referring to the what we might jump to a conclusion about, which is this pipeline, this pipeline that was used as a bridge into the woods. It's possible he's referring to that, but I the, that bridge that little pipeline is not really by the service on a service road or by a service road. While there are service roads that run 
um, perpendicular, immediately perpendicular to the highway on both sides of the interstates at, at, at that point. So I think that's what he's talking about. Miskelly, and you know, once again, he's not, the, he knows the area and it's not a, you know, it's not a huge area over there. Of course, he, he knows the area. He knows where the, uh, the roads, uh, you know, where the uh, overpasses are and so forth. Uh, but he is showing at least some familiarity with the area in relation to uh, the killing. Miss uh, Keller repeated that Jason and Damien were with him and no one else, and that he met up with them at Lakeshore, which is what he'd said before. He told Davis, That morning I went to West Memphis roofing. I got off about dinner time. And that's to say about midday, and, and apparently he did get off about 12 or 12.30 from, for lunch and was off the rest of the day. Prior to meeting Damien and Jason, he had been at Highland Trailer Park where he saw, quote, Lewis, Susie, Stephanie, Pat, Bubba, Cody, Stephanie, Bobby, no, some cop, and there was some more people out there too, I didn't have my I didn't have my watch. He wasn't sure of the time. He uh, mentioned some cop because he's going back to this uh, failed confession that he was on the scene when the cops were called when Stephanie Dollar, his friend Def, Stephanie Dollar's little son Cody, had been slapped by a woman in the neighborhood, and the police were called out. They claimed that. Uh, Miss Kelly uh, was on the scene. Uh, the problem is, is that the three law officers, a sheriff's deputy, James Dahlheide, and, and two uh, Marion police officers, one of them was Jason Oliver, I can't think of the other one's name right now, uh, they came out on the second call, and uh, all of them knew Miss Kelly, and none of them saw him at the scene. Miss Kelly said he, Damien, and Jason planned to meet at Lakeshore, and he said they finally met by the interstate, which is roughly adjacent to Lakeshore. And, you know, I'm not, again, Lakeshore is, you know, it faces directly to the interstate. It's, it, there's an, it's elevated there, the, the highway is. So it's not as if you can just easily walk onto the interstate from Lakeshore, but it's if he met him, if he met them on one of the roads coming into Lakeshore, uh, which he's described elsewhere, then he met them more or less by the interstate, at least by one definition. You know, when when the when the statements aren't that exact, we just sort of have to go with the most plausible explanation. But he said he met them by the interstate. Miss Kelly, well, Damien, I talked to him a couple of times, and he wanted me to go to West Memphis with him and Jason to find some girls, and I went. That's pretty innocuous, and he, he said he didn't know what was going to happen. We walked by a Walmart and on the service road. Now, Miss Kelly could not remember what the other two were wearing, but he recalled, I was wearing a white shirt that had a basketball, 
something on the front of it, and I had blue jeans that were greasy and white and blue and and greasy and white and blue Adidas. Now, Muskelly consistently recalled those clothes and those shoes. He um, gave the blue and white Adidas the next day to uh, his friend, Buddy, Buddy Lucas, as he gave a kind of a confession to Buddy Lucas that he had gone with Damien and Jason to uh, the woods and messed up some boys real bad. He didn't ex- exactly describe in explicit detail, but why would he? He was he was crying. He was ashamed. That was on May the sixth, nineteen ninety three. But getting back to February seventeenth, Miss Kelly said Damien and Jason were drinking beer and they became intoxicated at Robin Hood Hills. I drank to the point that I was sick, said Miss Kelly. He said he obtained the Evan Williams from Vicki Hutchison. Miss Kelly, we just sit out there, started drinking, and all of a sudden we heard some noise. Me and Jason hid, and Damien sat there, and he hid. And three little boys came up, and he jumped them. They had been there not very long on the Blue Beacon or western side of the little uh, ditch that runs through there. Miss Kelly said, All I know is that we heard some kids holler. Damien started making some noises to get their attention, and they came over to where we was at. Damien jumped on them, and the other two started beating on Damien, and me and Jason jumped on them. Miss Kelly grabbed, quote, the one that had a blue Boy Scout. He's talking about Michael Moore, who had his Boy Scout uniform on. Muskelly said, we started hitting them first, fist first. Jason got, first he cut one of them on the face on his left side, just a little bit like a scratch, and then they went to the other one and got on top of him and started hitting him and pulled his, pulled one of them's pants down and got on top of him and cut him. Now, Stevie was cut on the left side of the face while Christopher was castrated really beyond that and that it had damage to his penis it was a pretty horrific wound Muskelly I was still hitting that one a bunch on the face and head Michael Moore he's talking about Michael Moore Michael Moore had extensive head injuries Brent Davis asked him what was Damien doing what was Damien doing during this time Miss Kelly said, Well, the one that got cut on his face, he stuck his finger on his cheek and licked the blood off of it. He grabbed one of them by the ears. I do not know which one. He grabbed one by the ears, trying to pull his ears off or something, and grabbed them pretty tight until they turned red. They were saying, Stop, stop. The boys did have injuries to their ears. Davis, and what about the boy that you were hitting? Was he saying that? Miss Kelly, he was telling me to stop, and I stopped, and then Damien told me, no, no, don't stop, and I got on it again. Damien hit one of them in the head with a stick. 
I know that it was a stick like somebody had carved something into it or something, you know, part of a bark off of it. It was longer than a baseball bat. Now, now Damien often carried a ceremonial carved stick, a common practice among witches. Large sticks at the scene were taken into evidence. And some of the wounds seemed to have been made with a blunt object the size of the end of a large stick. The carved stick was later found at Eccles' home by a reporter weeks and weeks later. I think the Eccles family had already moved out at that point. Davis said, Now, when you were hitting, when you say that you were hitting them and Jason and Damien were hitting them, were they... Were the boys still conscious at that point? Miss Kelly says yes. As for Damien and Jason, I did not pay any attention to them. I just kept on hitting that one. Davis, what did you see Jason and Damien do to the other two? Miss Kelly, well, Damien was going to screw one of them. He was going to stick his penis in that little boy's behind, but as far as I could see, he didn't. He did not do it. He was going to. Then he didn't. He had his pants unbuttoned. In earlier confessions, he had described Eccles following through with oral and anal assaults on the boys. Are masturbating after initial, initial, an initial tentative assault. He said that uh, in this confession, he said that Damien pulled the boy's pants down while the boy kicked his feet. As for Jason, said Miss Kelly. He pulled one of those boys' pants down and got on top of him and started swinging. He was swinging his arms. He was coming like this, like you were swinging a swing blade. Uh, Christopher Byers had multiple stab wounds in the groin and leg areas. Brent Davis asked, Okay, was the boy lying face down or face up? Miss Kelly says face up. And Brent Davis says, And did Jason have anything on his hand, in his hands at that point? Miss Kelly says he has a knife. Davis said, was he actually hitting him with his knife or his fist? Miss Kelly says, well, the bl blade was opened. Could you see, was he cutting the boy? No, it looked like he was swinging the knife at his legs. Could you, did you ever see one of the boys get cut with the knife? After he got through, I noticed what he had done. Brent Davis says, what did you see? I saw the boy that was missing everything. When he was doing that, I seen blood fly. He started hollering, and Jason put a shirt over his mouth. He put a shirt over his mouth, and he came over where I was at. He wanted to do that one that I was hitting. He wanted to do him the same way, and I would not let him. I told him, I said, after I seen what he did to the other boy, I said, no. You are not doing this one like that. And he looked at me real weird, showed me that knife, and he just walked off. Miss Kelly said it was one of Jason's many knives, a fold-out with a locked blade. And I think I'm going to stop it there today. Hope everyone's doing well. I'm try to wrap this thing up.
Okay. Oh, well, I'm not going to. I've only gone 30 minutes. I'll go further. For some reason, I was thinking it was longer. Uh, so Miss Kelly said, well, Damien was squeezing. Jason went back to that one boy and started hitting him some more. The one that he cut, he just started hitting him on the face. I had done stopped what I was doing because uh, Michael Moore was unconscious. Uh, Britt Davis. What was Damien doing at this point? He was still holding, still messing with that boy's ears. And as for Michael, Miss Kelly says, I let him go after that. I let him go, and Damien told me don't, so I kept on holding on to him, and then I hit him some more. The one that was castrated, he was not moving that much no more. I figured that he might have been dead or whatever. I really did not know. Damien was messing with one of those boys' penis, pulling on it. Then we tied them up. Davis. Now, you said before when the police asked you in their statement and asked what they were tied up with, and you said that they were tied up with rope. And Miss Kelly says, I made that up. Davis said, why? Trying to get them off track. Damien and Jason tied up the boys while Miss Kelly stood there. Right hand, right leg, left hand, left leg. And Davis asked, what did you tie them with? Shoestrings. Davis, where did they get those shoestrings? Out of the boys' shoes. Davis, who got the shoestrings out of the shoes? Damien and Jason, and I handed it to them. I handed them the shoes. Davis, did you pull the strings out of the shoes? Miss Kelly, in one of them, but the rest I just grabbed and pulled them out. Were Damien and Jason taking the strings out of the shoes too, or were you doing that? I was doing that, Davis. And when you would get the strings out, you would hand them to the other two? Yes. And did you actually tie any of the knots that were tying any of the boys up? No. Were they, did they have their clothes on or did they have their clothes off when they got tied up? They had them off. Were they conscious when they were getting tied up? They were not moving no more. Can you tell us, were they saying anything or were they... They were not saying nothing, and when I throw, they throw them in the water, and I don't remember, but one of them was moving. One of them was moving like a worm. You know, the irony in that statement is that worm was Christopher Byers' nickname, affectionate nickname, because he was kind of a squirmy, really... Uh, Apparently a hyperactive kid, but squirmy, jumping around a lot. So they, they would joke with him, you know, you're like a worm. And that was his little nickname. Davis, who threw them in the water? Damien and Jason. Davis, were you there when that happened? I was getting ready to leave. Why was you getting ready to leave? Because... I was going to wrestling. Was there any other reason you were getting ready to leave? What else Jason did to that one boy? I could not do anything else. I left before them. I went up there by the truck stop and got on the overpass and went around. 
Did you have anything with you when you left the woods? A whiskey bottle? Was it empty or did it have any in it? Still had some in it. And you said earlier that you had drank to the point that you were sick. Did you get sick that night? Going home, drunk till I got sick. Do you remember where you were when you threw up? Miss Kelly said he got sick and Davis assumed he vomited. Elsewhere, Miss Kelly said they didn't throw up. It was in the grass over by the overpass. What did you do with your bottle? I busted it. Davis, where at? On the side of like an overpass. And that, the remnants were found at that site. What was it as far as daylight or dark? What was it when you left the woods? I would say about dark, close to dark. It was still light outside a little, not much. I went to my house, got my mask, and then went to Johnny's, and then went to Davis. You went wrestling. Was it dark when you left to go wrestling? Yes, we usually leave about 8 o'clock. So here he's saying he left for wrestling at 8 o'clock or so, which roughly coincides with some of the testimony from some of the other people that talk about the wrestling trip. Uh, you know, it would have been getting dark after sundown, so after 7.50 or so, between that for the next half hour or so, it would have been getting dark. So if he got home around, uh, you know, a bit before 8 and they left a little bit after 8 or 8.10 or 8.15 or 8.20, you know, it would still be a little bit light, but it would be getting dark. Um, let me see where I was. Uh, you went wrestling. Was it dark when you left to go wrestling? Yes, we usually leave about 8, Davis. But on that night, was it already dark when you got ready to leave? Yes, but usually he say he is ready to go, and we do not go, and we just sit there and sit there, and finally we get ready to go. Now, uh, a departure at 8 or later would give Muskelly plenty of time to walk home, get his mask, and meet up with his friends. Davis says, is everything that you told me true? And Muskelly says, yes, sir. Asked about later interactions with Baldwin and Eccles, Muskelly said, When I seen Damien and Jason on the 14th, they just looked at me and they never said nothing to me. I did not want to say nothing to them after what I had seen. Now, he, he's referring to May 14th. That was a Friday, and Friday, Friday was the day that these teens frequented Skateland. which is a roller rink uh, in West Memphis. Uh, Miskelly reiterated that he did not want to speak with his attorneys. They repeated that they had advised him not to make the statement. I have a very strong opinion that he is perjuring himself, said Greg Crow. The taping session started at 8.02 p.m. and ended at 8.45. In large and small details, Muskelly's latest narrative was largely in accord with previous confessions. 
The sexual assaults were downplayed, though Miss Skelly continued to accuse Eccles of molesting the children. A major discrepancy in his initial confessions using rope instead of shoestring was cleared up. Miss Skelly finally confessed to helping tie up the boys. And that is it. And as we can see, uh, briefly the wrestling trip at trial, it was used as an alibi, even though it really wasn't a very good alibi since, as we've already been saying, he had time to go on the wrestling trip and commit the murders. But because of the way it was presented at trial, tied to a specific date, this particular trip tied to a specific date, signing a receipt for the use for the uh uh for the purchase of the uh boxing uh ring i think and it turns out that that purchase was made a week before not may 5th pretty much ruined miscalli's alibi if there was much of an alibi with the wrestling trip but he's persisting with it and for all we know they actually did go and the the rest the the receipt and all that was just, you know, once again, an unforced error on their part. They could have just simply said he went with us on the wrestling trip. It would have been much harder to disprove. But when you've got a written receipt there and a time stamp uh, that turns out to be a false time stamp, it really hurts you in terms of how the jury perceives you. And... Uh, that's it for this evening. Um, I'm going to sign off for now, wishing everyone well.